I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, in service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word that is indeed living and active. And God, even through tonight, we believe as your word is preached, you long to meet us, to breathe life and hope in ways that only you can, so that as your people, called by this great mercy, that we might behold you, and in beholding you, that we might be transformed into the likeness of your Son. And that is our longing and our prayer. And we pray that you would do this very work in our hearts now. In Christ's name, amen. We are continuing our study in the book of Romans, and we come to a very famous passage in Romans chapter 12. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a famous Welsh pastor, once preached for years through the book of Romans. In fact, he, he averaged 27 sermons per chapter. Right? Aren't you glad? <laughs> 27 chapters, I mean, uh, sermons per chapter, and here in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he preached 10 sermons, 10 sermons, just out of these two verses. So get comfortable, okay? I warned you. <laughs> no, we don't have time to do that, but we, we do want to park it here and slow down and even as we do this 30,000-foot view of Romans 12, we want to ask ourselves this question. What does a redeemed community look like? Because now Paul begins to address the church in Rome. He has so far unpacked the mercy of God in chapters 1 through 11. And as he is landing the plane, if you will, he begins to parse out for us the practical, concrete implications of what this mercy then looks like in a community of God's people. And so beginning here in chapter 12, in verses 1 and 2, he introduced the paradigm which we will talk about, and then he goes into, now you as God's people, the called out ones, those who have been given mercy, 
those who are adopted, this is how you ought to live. And this message was radical message in Rome. Rome, much like Washington, was a cosmopolitan city divided over tons of isms. And people made sure those lines were kept. The rich didn't hang out with the poor. The educated didn't want to hang out or be seen by the uneducated. The haves stayed far from the not-haves. And here Paul says, no, 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 no. Take all that you know about community and you can toss it out. Because this mercy that God has shown you reshapes everything about what you know is to be true of genuine community. And that's what he does for us. This weekend, until this morning, I was at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University retreat um, speaking to uh, college students and uh, some grad students uh, for the weekend, just talking about God's grace and all that. And um, I met this one guy who is brand new to church, and he looked puzzled. And, and after one of the sessions, he came up to me and he asked, hey, can I ask you a uh, question. I said, sure. He's like, who is Jesus? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I'm brand new to church. And I thought it was weird that like they were offering fellowship. I thought it was a program and I didn't even have to sign up. They just said, come and we'll feed you. So he can't, he didn't know anything about Christ, about church, about the Bible, nothing. And uh, so I asked him, I'm like, so why are you even here? He's like, well, the people here are so inviting, so welcoming, so nice. And I thought, you know, I want to be around people like this. I think that will be helpful during my time here at VCU. I was again, I mean, I was so surprised, but I was reminded again of the power of community. See, we all long for community because we are better together. We're better together. You see, creation itself wasn't complete until the establishment of community. And we've talked about this before. But remember the words God said, it is not good. Something wasn't good about the pre-fall Eden, a sinless world. God said something is off, something is not right. And so he creates Eve and brings her to Adam. And then he says, that's better. And with the creation of community, God then speaks words of blessing, pronounces blessing upon man and woman, and blesses them with the mandate to go then reflect this glory and beauty to the ends of the earth. You see, the longing for community is baked into our humanity. See, our longing for intimacy our longing for friendship, our longing for peace and flourishing of all, our longing to see people come together and not divide over a bunch of isms that are so well-known in the city is in the very part of who we are as human beings. And the question then could be asked, can this even be a reality? In a broken world, especially in a city that is so divided, can this even be a reality? And Paul says, yes, absolutely. Because his mercy for us trumps all of these things. 
And if we could but fix our gaze on all that he has done and allow these things to flow out of us into this community and into this city, then we can begin to see the very things that God longs to see in this city actually crystallize. So what does a redeemed community look like? We're going to look at three things this evening. Three things. See, Glenn's gone for one weekend, and we start doing three-point sermons, right? You better hope he comes back soon. Okay. <laughs> three things. First, it starts with commitment to Christ. Okay, it starts with commitment to Christ. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Apostle Paul presents a biblical paradigm for a compelling gospel-centered community, and it boils down to this. It is not you must therefore commit yourselves to one another, but he says, give all of yourself to God. Give all of yourself to God. And this is not just a suggestion or even a good advice, but it's a command for all. He says, I appeal to you as an apostle called to speak the very words of God, I appeal to you as those who have come to understand and embrace the mercy of God to give all of yourself to the Lord. How do we do that? We offer our bodies. What does this mean? It simply means that we offer our entire self in all of its particularity and concreteness, everything that makes us us, so that all of life becomes a conduit of his beauty and glory. See, Paul affirms the sacredness of the ordinary. See, the mundaneness of everyday life, the repetitive things that we go through throughout the week, they are sacramental, okay? The word sacrament simply means the outward symbol of an inward reality. And we refer to this table as a sacrament. The bread and the cup symbolize something much deeper, a spiritual reality, which is Christ by his spirit present with us in these elements. And that's what Paul is saying. You don't have to go to a temple. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to engage in quote-unquote spiritual things to offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. But you in your ordinary everyday life, Monday morning as you go into work, Tuesday afternoon as you engage yet again with your coworker, Wednesday evening as you hang out with your roommates or family members, all of these things can and must become worship to God. Worship that is born out of a loving gratitude for the mercy that he has shown us. But let me say this. This does not mean that every ordinary thing we do is automatically worship to God. Okay, let me say that again. It does not mean that every ordinary thing we do, then it automatically becomes worship to God. Rather, what Paul is saying is this that even the most ordinary thing we do can become worship to God as we understand mercy and respond out of faith and gratitude. Here, Paul alludes to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which we read earlier in Leviticus chapter 1. And if you go back and reread that passage, you realize that offering made to God wasn't just accidental, you didn't just end up at the temple with an animal. Oh, here I am. Might as well offer this. No, it was very much intentional. 
reflective and prayerful. It took time to pick out just the right animal and the process it took to have the priest pray over it, to sacrifice it, and this part belongs here and that part belongs there and this part doesn't belong at all. And as you offer the sacrifice to the Lord, it was a reminder that that is what I deserved for my sin. Yet God has done something. And so I offer this sacrifice in humble, joyful gratitude to my God. And that's the kind of heart intentionality God wants as we offer all of ourselves as worship to him. And I think Paul's message is this, and we can't miss this. Paul here, by exhorting us to offer our body, says it is not good enough to have our theological ducks in a row. We do not believe in salvation by knowledge. Yes, we need to know the deep theology, the, the, the rich doctrine that Paul spells out for us. But Paul says, no, it's not good enough to simply know the mercy of God, but it's got to trickle down into your heart, and it's got to extend out of your hands, your feet, and even your mouth, so that everything we do becomes worship. And that's what, exactly what Paul models here in Romans chapters 11 and 12. As he's unpacking rich theology all the way up to 11, he ends chapter 11 with worship in verses 33 to 36. It's passionate worship born out of his understanding of God's grace and mercy. And it doesn't end there. He doesn't wrap Romans there with that glorious praise, but then he makes the effort to connect the dots for us to say it's not good enough to end with chapter 11. You have to understand that grace and mercy that God has shown you, it pushes you into chapters 12, 13. We're going to talk about government, 14, and 15. And I know a lot of us, we want to stop and say, well, isn't it good? No, Paul says no. The mercy affects how we actually carry out our lives in all of its details. And when we offer ourselves to God, it always requires death. That's why he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The new life in Christ always involves death of self, mainly the right to live as you choose. Okay? This concept that I am free to do whatever I want is baked into our national identity. Our Constitution calls it the unalienable right, right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the Bible pushes against that and says, you are not your own. You have been bought, purchased by his blood. Therefore, you are not owners of your life, but you are stewards, managers of the things that God has entrusted to you. And therefore, how we live life must align with his will for us. Can you imagine if you're standing at a, a bus stop or waiting for Metro and some stranger comes up to you and they ask if they could use your phone and you're a Christian, so you're like, sure, right? You want to be hospitable, so you offer your phone. And after making the phone call, you notice that he or she is changing the wallpaper, erasing your contact list, and then adding theirs 
deleting your personal favorite apps and then downloading theirs, right? You're like, wait a minute. That's not your phone. You can't just do whatever you want. It's mine. I let you borrow it to make a phone call. It would be absurd if we caught someone actually doing that with our phone. And yet, so often, I think that's what we do with the resources that God has entrusted to us. Not realizing that they do not belong to us We've been called to steward well, faithfully over them. This, offering all of ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, Paul says, is the most logical thing to do. It's spiritual act of worship, or other translations have it as, it's the most proper worship we could give to God. You see, in view of God's great mercy for us, total surrender is the only logical and the reasonable thing to do. In fact, to not give myself to God in such a manner would be the height of folly and irrationality. And with these words, we see Paul come full circle. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, Paul said, they, the godless people, they knew God, but did not worship. And now he says to the redeemed community, you are not to be like that. Your knowledge of God should lead you to worship. And not just empty words that you sing or pray on Sundays, but your life ought to be offered to God as worship. That's how it begins. Redeemed community begins as we commit ourselves to Christ. And secondly, Paul talks about conformity to Christ. Conformity to Christ. In verse 2 he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. You see, the problem with our mind is not that we are finite, but that we're fallen. Okay? In other words, Augustine was right. Our mind and our heart, they're disordered. So the things that we gravitate toward, the things we love, the affections of our heart, the Greek word is interchangeable here, heart and mind, they've been flipped upside down. So the things that we ought to love and cherish, we don't. And the things that are secondary at best, they become primary and the ultimate things. And that's why, as John Calvin said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We bow our hearts before all kinds of things except God himself. And worship, whether we worship God or any idols, okay, worship always requires sacrifice. It does. You may be wondering how. how I, I don't sacrifice anything. You know, these, I, I don't do that. If you worship wealth, you worship power, you worship status, you're going to end up sacrificing family, relationships, personal integrity, and even health. If those things become your ultimate, and there is nothing to help guide you, to put things into perspective, if they're the ultimate things that you bow to, and you're pursuing those things at all costs, then you're sacrificing all of these things to have it. 
Paul says that's not the way it should be. We ought to be transformed, no longer conforming to the patterns, thought patterns of this world, but we ought to then be conformed to the likeness of Christ and his moral beauty. And it begins by exposing the lies that perpetuate idolatry in us, the patterns that we have adopted, we have normalized. It's become who we are. And we need to allow God's truth to expose these things. And let me say here that if you live on soundbite theology, it's not going to get you very far. Cotton candy diet will kill you. And if you're not diving deep into the word to understand what the word has to say. Look, Glenn preaches great sermons up here. And if that's the sum total of your like, theological digestion, like, digestion, right? You're living off of borrowed conviction. Like that's what Glenn is passionate about. That's what he's convicted about. And you might get blessed by it. You, you might even get moved by it. But it's not your conviction. You got to get into the word for yourself. And you got to devote yourself to studying what the Bible has to say for yourself. So I want to encourage you to be students, faithful students of God's word. But conformity to Christ is not just a personal thing, but it's actually a communal thing. It involves all of us. Giving our lives to God has everything to do with loving others well. It is never divorced from our responsibility to this community and to this city. The work of establishing a healthy biblical community is not assigned to a handful of spiritual people, but all of us who have come to know this mercy. So if you have a testimony of how God has worked in your life, then this is what Paul is calling you to. So if you're in community with us and you call Grace Downtown your home, great. Thanks for coming. I want to encourage you to keep on getting involved. But if you're not yet serving the community, I want to encourage you to do so. Because our faith is never idle. It moves us into action and expresses our gratitude and hope we have in God. So your service is not just something you do to check off a list of things you have to do, but it's actually communicating to this community of your hope, your faith, and of your joy. And that's what strengthens this community. It's not just the word preached, the song sung, but it's how we minister to one another as we serve one another. We help build this body into the fullness uh, of Christ. And let me also say this. Paul here in Romans 12 gives no qualifications. He does not say if you have tons of free time and you binge Netflix for two weeks and you still don't know what to do, then maybe consider serving your local church community. No, he says this has to be your priority. It has to be your priority. It's, 
if you are a believer in community with other believers, then this is your calling. This is your calling. And beginning with verse 3 all the way to verse 8, Paul talks about three things here. Now, we can unpack this in many ways, but uh, we're not going to get into what is a spiritual gift and what are these spiritual gifts specifically. We don't have time for that. But I'll say this. One, this is not an exhaustive list, and the seven gifts listed here are not symbolic. Okay? But Paul is trying to get at what it takes, what, it require, what is required for a community to be healthy. Okay? Three things. First, as we understand community and serving one another, we must first and foremost be humble. Okay? We must be humble. Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith, that God has assigned. I think it's important for us to understand that spiritual gifts are exactly that, they're gifts. And they're evidence of God's grace for the church and not your spirituality. Okay? And we like to, we like to keep score, don't we? I wonder how they're doing over there. Oh, how do I measure up? No, we're given these gifts so that we can pour into this community. I wonder sometimes if God gets frustrated because he has lavished us with gifts and then we're like, yeah, no thanks. It's not convenient. I've tried it. I'm burnt out, taking a break. I wonder if God gets frustrated. Maybe. I don't know. You know, whenever we buy snacks, um, my kids, they have their own favorite. And uh, I'm not going to say which one, but uh, she... Um, she hoards, okay? She, she's the hoarder. <laughs> Whenever we buy any, she, she's like, oh, there's my favorite, mine. And uh, when, when we encourage her to share it with her siblings, she justifies her hoarding, right? It is because they don't appreciate the pretzels. They don't know what fine delicacy these pretzels are. In fact, the youngest one, he just devours them without any... I, he's an animal. Why would I share my pretzels, the ones you worked so hard to get, and throw them at Daniel? And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't get pretzels so that you can hide them right, and then go to your secret spot in the middle of the night while everyone else is sleeping to indulge on them, right? No, we didn't, do, no, we, we bought these things for you so you can share them. And every time I see that play out, I'm like, oh, God, I confess my sin. I feel like God is saying, mm-hmm, Mike, it would do you well to learn because that's how you treat my gifts sometimes. We ought to be humble. And really the posture ought to be to serve, to engage, to love the body, the community God has given to us. Not only that, Paul speaks of diversity. We are one body in verses 4 to 5. We are one body with many parts. We all have different callings. And with that, we have different set of gifts. 
And we have different stories and experiences that collectively make this community rich. And I love, I love being a part of this church. In fact, at the retreat this weekend I was at until this morning, I was sharing about and boasting about you and what a great community we have. It's not perfect. It's messy, like every community. But we're leaning into the messiness of relationships with people who are really different from us. I'm a Korean American. I was born and raised in Korea, in the Korean church, and I land here, and I'm like, liturgy, huh? Like, you actually have written prayers? That seems odd. Like, you would never do that in the Korean church. It would, it would be looked out as unspiritual, right? But as we come together and teach one another, instruct one another, and demonstrate the gospel to one another, it becomes rich. And so whether you are white, not white, whether you're older or younger, whether you've been in church for a long time or you're brand new to the church, regardless of who you are, you are important and you have a place here in this church. God has gifted you And he calls you to then exercise that gift to make this body beautiful. Would you do that? If you've been coming for some time and you've been on the fence about really getting plugged in and serving, would you think about that? And lastly, Paul talks about faithfulness. Faithfulness. In verses 6 through 8, Paul talks about how we ought to use our gifts faithfully according to the measure of faith God has given to us. You see, our gifts, as great and noble and beautiful uh, as they may be, are never meant to be showcased behind glass doors. No, we're to use them, okay? They should be worn, okay? It, it, It should be aged and worn from all the times that you've used those gifts to serve this body. And together, as we respond to the call to exercise the gifts that God has given to us, we then build each other up so that together as a community, we experience the full measure of Christ. In other words, my spiritual maturity, my character development, My kingdom-mindedness, my love for God and for the city has everything to do with you and your faithfulness in serving this body and vice versa. We all play an important role in one another's life. So don't ever think like, oh, it's just me. It's just me. No, you play an important role. Let's wrap up then with this last point. If you've been tracking, you may be asking how this sounds all great. But how do we do it? Where is the power? Where is our hope? Where do we find strength to actually commit ourselves to Christ and to be conformed into his likeness? How do we do this? Does it boil down to simply me trying harder, doing more? Paul says no. He says we must be compelled by Christ. We must be compelled by Christ his mercy for us. Again, Romans 12, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, he has, in previous 11 chapters, parsed this thing out 
And he has said God's mercy essentially is not just a set of theological propositions. It's more than these things we toss around in our sermons, but it's the new spiritual reality that you and I have been invited into. In fact, the mercy of God is nothing less than deep, intimate relationship with the triune God. He opens the door wide open to say, come, share in the wealth of this fellowship here so that you can receive everything you need for life and for godliness. It's a lot more than just, well, that's a nice thought. That sounds great. No, as we enter into this relationship by faith, we we are transformed by the power of the gospel that is at work in us. So that we as God's people no longer just talk about being community, but we actually take practical steps wading into the uncomfortable spots of being in relationship with people who we don't quite get. And we say, this is where the gospel pushes me into. This is God's mercy for us. And as we keep his mercy in view, our hearts will be so moved that we cannot help but to pour ourselves into one another. And that is the challenge for us, to keep his mercy always before us. Because if we're not intentional, if we're not vigilant, then something else will take, will take the place of his mercy and our hearts will begin to gravitate toward it. And it happens quickly, subtly, doesn't it? Sometimes it happens in a blink of an eye. We intend on doing things and doing things well, and then we see a commercial, or we hear about this, or we notice that, and all of a sudden, our hearts are fixed elsewhere. God's mercy is no longer in our purview, but it's marriage. It's promotion. It's money. Now, these things are not bad in themselves, but if they become the very thing that our hearts are gravitating to, then Paul says you miss everything. You need to fight to keep his mercy before you. How do we do that? We do that as we get into the word. You've heard this before. You get into the word, read, meditate, reflect, and pray through these words until they affect your heart and move you into joyful obedience so that you're not simply just rushing out the door to go to your next meeting to get another thing done, but you intentionally build into your daily and weekly schedules times to be with God and allow this truth to affect us.